Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. And this is our friend Nan. Let's get started. I know, it's been so fun during this book to have Nan with us. I really think it's added to our conversation and it's lightened our load a little bit with (laughs) how much we have to come up with. For sure. This week, we are covering chapters 34 to 42. Last week, where we left off, Darcy and Elizabeth had kept running into each other out on their walks. And then she runs into Colonel Fitzwilliam, who tells her a story about Darcy intervening to stop a marriage for one of his friends who he thought was going to have a bad match. And she realizes that Darcy was the one that ruined Jane's chances with Bingley. So, and I think you guys said last week that the next chapter was a big one. (laughs) I think that leads right into the next chapter because she is so distraught about what Colonel Fitzwilliam tells her that she actually stays home from Rosings Park because she's like made herself sick basically. And uh, so everybody else is going to go to dinner and she stays at home at Mr. and Mrs. Collins home and is reading letters, like reading over Jane's letters and um, really thinking about them. And then Mr. Darcy shows up. So in modern language, this is Elizabeth saying, oh no, I just can't. And then doom scrolling on her phone. So if we're not totally seriously, that's what's happening. (laughs) That's really funny and true. She's just not feeling it that night. So the next two chapters I will be covering are very heavy and very involved. And there's a lot to them. So I I feel bad. I feel like I keep getting these really, really big chapters. And maybe it's just me overthinking it. So I'm sorry if I like go really long. It's just, I was like, oh, how do I summarize this? It's a doozy too, Amity. You have 34 and 35. 36 is a doozy. It's where we unpack. That's true. So yeah, it's all, yeah. these few are huge. They yeah. are. They're like, I, in fact, I was thinking about, I was like, I feel like we could spend an episode just on these few chapters. So Mr. Darcy comes in at this point, he knows that she's there by herself and he's like, I'm sorry. I hope you're feeling better whatever. And then he's just very agitated and super awkward. And she's like, okay. And he like sits down and he gets back up and it says he walks around for several moments and that's a long time when you don't know what's going on and somebody's just like in your house walking around quietly and very agitated. <laughs> that would seem like eternity. He obviously has this inner struggle going on and he comes up to her and he's like, there's a lot of direct quotes I'm going to be giving here too, because they're just, there's no way to just say them in my own words. He says, in vain, I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. And this is just so out of the blue, so unexpected. Elizabeth is just shocked. She's like, wait, what? says her astonishment was beyond expression and she sort of flushes and she's like okay and and he's he sort of takes that nonverbal response as encouragement and so he continues and the way his manner of continuing is very well interesting shall we say now and you brought it up before that 
some people have speculated that maybe Mr. Darcy was like on the spectrum. And I feel like nowhere is this, maybe I feel like all that would probably be based a lot on this interaction right here, because it is so, as my kids sit, would say out of pocket, <laughs> just like, what are you doing? He continues on to talk about how, okay, what did she say? He was not more eloquent on the subject of tenderness than a pride. So he's like talking about how he does like her a lot. But at the same time, he's talking about how inferior her connections are and how he really is so much better than her. And so this is not a great match. And all of his senses, all of his logic is telling him, no, this would be against the wishes of his friends and his family. You know, he can't repress it anymore. He's hoping that she will marry him. And the way he comes across is so offensive and just so degrading and demeaning to her. And it says that at first she feels a little bit flattered. It says she could not be insensible to the compliment of such a man's affection. She's like, Mr. Darcy, the Mr. Darcy is proposing to me. And that's a big deal. But then as he carries on, she was just like angry. She knew from the start she would be rejecting him. She's like, well, I kind of feel bad. I'm going to be telling him no, but this is cool. And then all of a sudden she's just like, oh my gosh, as he continues on and carries on and just being so rude. And maybe unknowingly, that's where I think maybe the, the spectrum thing is. Maybe he's just like, well, this is obvious. It's obvious that you're inferior. You should know this. I have a question. Go ahead. So is it possible that he thinks he's telling her a good thing? Like, I mm. love you so much, even though you're inferior, even though your family isn't what I want them to be and they're embarrassing or whatever. But I like he thinks it's a good thing. And he doesn't really so. expect her to say no with all of this because it doesn't give us specifics about what exactly he said. It's more yeah. just like a paragraph of like alluding to what he says. Right. But as she's observing him, it says he spoke of apprehension and anxiety, but his countenance expressed real security. So even while he's telling her all of this, she can see by the look on his face that he actually has no doubt of her saying yes. And the, again, there's that like pride piece. There's been no part of his pride, even though he's nervous to talk to her, no part of his pride would allow for the fact that she might reject him. He has no thought that that is what's coming. Yeah, it is amazing to say the least. So when he finally stops talking, she gives her piece and that, and like you say, it's not specific about what he says, but it's very specific about what she says. And I couldn't help thinking, I was like, I mean, of course this is written by an incredible novelist who took time to think through everything that she would say, but I couldn't help thinking. I wish that my brain could be so together and so eloquent in these highly emotional situations. Oh yeah, Elizabeth's brilliant. Later on, she'll say, I, I was mostly speaking from anger. I'm like, no, you're just brilliant. No, you're just brilliant. I know. I know. But basically, she's like, if I could feel gratitude, I would thank you, but I can't. I've never desired your good opinion, and you've certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. And basically, she tells him, no. Just as shocked as she was at the proposal, he is equally shocked at her refusal. So she kind of proceeds to be like, well, these are some of the reasons why. Like, you are responsible for my sister and Bingley being separated. And he's he's actually kind of proud of that. He's like, yeah, I am. I did everything in my power to separate them. And I'm very He also has the temerity here to call Elizabeth uncivil. 
why with so little endeavor at civility, I'm thus rejected when he has just like, you know, she's like, well, why was so evident a desire to offend and insult me? Did you even ask me? He accuses her basically of impoliteness as if the only polite response is to say yes. Yeah. Like automatically you're impolite if you're like, uh, no way. It's not what I want. Which strikes at the heart of a lot of issues that I think women have had just over time in general, which again is like, it's incredible for this woman in the early 19th century to even be writing about, because it's something that we often still struggle with today is we have to be polite. We have to be nice. No, you don't. Of course, it's important to be gracious and refined, but when somebody does or says anything that is offensive or um, assaulting at all, you don't need to be polite. She expresses this very well. It's, it is after he kind of accuses her of being uncivil that she's like, look, first of all, you were so rude. Second of all, yeah, you like are responsible for separating my sister and Bingley, which again, he's like, yeah, I totally did. And then she got, jumps into the Wickham thing and is like, and you're responsible for basically destroying Wickham's life. He doesn't really respond to that so much. He's just like, okay. Um, and so you're like interested in that guy, whatever. As a last ditch effort, Darcy is like, he's sort of like trying to defend his own pride. And he's like, you probably wouldn't have even brought those things up if if I hadn't hurt your pride when I said that you guys are inferior and that you the connection to your family would not be up to par or whatever. And she was like, no, no, you're saying that only made it easier for me to say no. She's like, I was always going to say no. I've basically always disliked you. And like from the very moment of our first acquaintance, I knew that you were somebody I could never marry. And I had to quote this part because, and I wrote next to it. I was like, we just don't talk like this anymore. And I wish we did. But she was like, from the first moment, I may almost say my acquaintance with you, your manners, impressing me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others were such as to form the groundwork of disapprobation on which succeeding events have built is so immovable a dislike. And I had not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed on to marry. Again, like, why can I not walk so eloquent and, and uh, very clear in highly emotional situations? But. And like, how often are we that forward? Yeah. Right? I mean, think about, you know, if a boy was to come to one of your daughters and in this situation, I don't know that they would be that forward and say, no, no, no. They would let them down lightly. I don't lightly. know. Yeah. Like they wouldn't tell him what they think. Like she's telling him what he, she thinks. And in the beginning, I think she tries to a little bit, but he doesn't yeah. walk away. And as you read their like interjections here, like how they're saying things, they go from like surprise to shock to contempt. And then they're just like spitting at each other by the end of this. Mm-hmm. And if you think of both their characters, Elizabeth, who has this sort of native happy disposition that she sort of sees, she can find the bright side in things, right? She sees things as silly, but she can kind of move on. And Darcy, who's probably never had a cross word with a gentlewoman in his life. Darcy is the soul of like dignity and restraint. But when it comes to Elizabeth, he's just, she gets under his skin so badly. And they really do that to each other here. And they end up in this very undignified shouting match. You know, all the time now you hear people like breaking up and it just blows up on the internet and they're yelling at each other. The insanity is like, I think in some ways in our time, we do live in a more uncivil time in some ways. 
And so for these two to have gotten to this place, especially when in Austin's time, if women are writing books, the proposal is the big climax and it's what you've been building towards and, oh, they're going to get married, right? And this one, the proposal comes in the middle of the book and it's a disaster. And then it turns into this terrible shouting match instead of the woman being just totally grateful to accept the 10,000 pounds as she should be and just keep her mouth shut. Yeah, totally. And I have every line underlined in this. And when they do film versions of this, they pull so much verbatim out of here, which I think speaks to the real power of Austin's prose. A lot of times there'll be older movie adaptations from things and the story will be preserved. A lot of the language might be changed, but this one, she's such a master of dialogue that it's like, it's a screenplay, you know, they'll shorten up some speeches, but, but as you read through this, if you've seen a few film versions, you can just see those characters delivering those lines so expertly in your head. Yes, I do have to say, so I actually went and watched clips of both um, the 1995 and the 2005 versions. I feel like the 1995 was way more true to the book. Like it was verbatim. Even the location they chose yeah. to like film in and everything. Yeah. Because like in the 2005, they're like, it's like raining and they're outside at this little, I don't know what it is, but. Well, and they yeah. have it that she um, heard from Colonel Fitzwilliam while they were sitting in church. And then she runs mm-hmm. straight from church because right. they're doing the whole film in two hours. They have to shorten all the timeline. Totally. The rain scene in that 2005 version has ended up so famous because there is this incredible tension between those two actors that's there is and there's a part where as she's telling him no you see him glance towards her lips and there's a moment where if if you haven't read the book a new person to that scene would think they're going to kiss because it really Mm -hmm. looks like that's about to happen even in the midst of like all this anger you can see there's this underlying powerful passion between these two characters yeah. And that's what I keep going back and forth. There is certainly like Lovely. good things in both. Yeah. yeah. He finally leaves and she, as you can imagine, like this is so incredibly relatable. And I love how this is written. She just breaks down and like cries for a long time and is just overcome by the, the intensity and, and just all the things that just came at her so fast, all the things that came out of her so fast. And it was just a lot and exhausting but something that I love at the end, she was like, it was gratifying to have inspired unconsciously so strong an affection. She's like, oh, well, that was neat. <laughs> power. That's power. Anyway, sorry, that was long. And the next chapter is probably longer. The very next morning, like she did sleep, but she wakes up just thinking about all of it. As you can imagine, she's out walking and she runs into Mr. Darcy and he obviously it's by design, you know, and he calls to her, makes her stop, and then gives her a letter. It's a very thick letter. The and letter. Just, yes, the letter. And he just asks her to please read it. So she does, and it is a very lengthy letter. He just basically is like, hey, you accused me of two big things. They're not the same in weight, but I want to address them basically, you know? And so he first talks about the Jane and Bingley situation. And he just says, he's like, I really did not think that Jane liked Bingley at all. He is like, I've seen my friend in love several times, but it was very apparent at the Netherfield ball that this was something different. Bingley really, really loved Jane. But he's like, 
yeah, your sister is like pleasant and nice. But beyond that, it was not evident to me that she returned his affection in the same way. In a way, it kind of seemed like she was leading him on more than anything. And then he's like, right. I think is very interesting there too. Charlotte had said earlier, um, she should show more than she feels if she wants to secure his affection. And so that's the other piece. Like if this is really true, if that's really how Darcy perceived the situation, then Charlotte Lucas may have been right all along that Jane should have been more demonstrative with her feelings. Yes, exactly. And that's why when we talked about that part, I was like, this is actually kind of foreshadowing because he states that. And actually later, Elizabeth reflects back on that. She's like, yeah, Charlotte did say that. She knows it's true. Yeah. So that's the first piece of it. And then he kind of jumps in on her family. He's like, that would not be the biggest thing, but it is as far as his friend is concerned, that's concerning for him, you know, but he was like, your family is not well connected, but here's the thing is there's a total want of propriety. So frequently, so almost uniformly betrayed by her mother, her three younger sisters, and occasionally even her father. And then he does acknowledge, he's like, yeah, you and your sister are not that way at all. Like you're very refined. You're very lovely women. You could basically be in any society, but your family is like basically out of control and it's pretty embarrassing. So what's hard too is Lizzie in her way, especially the night of the Netherfield ball, Lizzie has kind of already acknowledged this to herself. She, she knows it's true. very embarrassed the night of the ball. She saw these things happening. So this is what's hard as she reads this letter is, you know, it's one thing to like recognize faults in your own family. It's quite another thing to have somebody else. Yeah. To Yes. But he's not saying anything Elizabeth hasn't already been deeply concerned about. And that, again, is sort of the brilliancy of the writing is like everything he says has already been like planted in her heart and in our hearts as readers. So everything he says, we're like, that's true. It's harsh, but it's true. So, yeah, he just talks about how he did do everything he could to separate his friend from this connection of these people who just seem like all they wanted was money. I think sometimes too, like you see the foibles in your own family and they become kind of like endearing or funny or whatever. And then you're around other people and you're like, oh, that points us out as like kind of awkward or different. (laughs) Right. But when you're just (laughs) the people, you know, and love every family has them, like their quirks and their different things. I think this is especially true. Like I know like when your kids are really young, you get used to your kids the way they are, but then you see them in other environments and you worry for them or you're embarrassed for them or even for yourself sometimes, right? I just think this is pretty universal here. What seems kind of amusing and absurd to Elizabeth as an insider, she's suddenly getting a view of this from outsider eyes and it's painful. Yeah. And realizing this is actually not okay if we ever want to amount to, not amount to anything but just have hope for the future for our family really because that's what it came down to is like their behavior was making it so that none of them would ever do well in life they wouldn't make good marriages in this society which they in live. this society right exactly which is is what she's up against is her society she can't really get out of that so the one thing he does say he's ashamed of is that he did know that Jane was in London and that he had never told Bingley but it also kind of assures Lizzie that Bingley didn't know he wasn't just ignoring Jane he really actually legitimately did not know that Jane was there so then Darcy goes on to address the Wickham question so Wickham was the godson of the late Mr. Darcy Mr. Darcy really really liked him and just 
they got along really well. Mr. Darcy supported Mr. Wickham at Cambridge, put him through school because Wickham's father was not able to. Apparently his mother was very extravagant and like spent money she didn't have. And then after school, Mr. Darcy was like, you know, I'll provide a living for you if you decide to go in the church, you know, that would be a good place for you and I'll I'll provide for you. Darcy, I'm referring to Darcy's father as Mr. Darcy and our Darcy is just Darcy. Okay. So he had seen Wickham at school. He'd grown up with him. He knew him. It just over a period of years, he realized he is not what my father thinks he is. He has vicious propensities, as he says, and a total lack of principles. And he says he'd seen him in unguarded moments and was less than impressed. So when the elder Mr. Darcy died, Wickham was like, I'm not taking orders. He's like, a thousand pounds a year is not going to be enough because, or just a thousand pounds legacy is not going to be enough. That's what Mr. Darcy was going to leave for him. He's like, I don't want to go to the church. I want to, I want to study the law. So Mr. Darcy's like, okay, well, how about we settle for 3000 pounds, like right off. And he's like, I don't actually think you're going to study the law, but like, I wish you would, but he gives him 3000 pounds because he wants to honor his father's wishes. And then some Wickham just, he totally doesn't study the law. Instead, he just idles away and he loses all the money. It's all gone. And so he applies to Darcy for more and Darcy's like, no. Well, and now it's not just two that he wants more money. It's that now he wants the living that's on the estate. And he's like, well, now maybe I'll be a clergyman. But yeah. by this point, Darcy's seen enough. I, I There's a line that he basically says something like, I knew that he should not become a clergyman. Yes. Yes, like, that's true. I knew that Mr. Wickham ought not to be a clergyman. What I think is interesting here is Austin is pretty limited in her understanding of the world as it is because of the way she's been raised and kind of sheltered. And she's a gentlewoman who's never been married. She alludes to some things here, which Austin herself might not even know what she's implying that Wickham's into. And yeah, I think that's yeah. why it's so vague. I think it's partly like Darcy would not say those things to Elizabeth because he doesn't want yeah. to affect her. So there's definitely that, but some of it is Austin herself may not know all the various ways that gentlemen can get into trouble. Yeah. So she's like kind of vague about like, yeah. and you know, they have different film versions of that of what they imply Wickham's into. And we'll get a little bit later, more details about that. But yeah, I think that part's kind of funny where Austin alludes to some really bad stuff, but she's like, whatever guys do, that's really bad. That's what (laughs) he does. Yeah, he did it. (laughs) That thing. Yeah. or things but i did like that too where darcy was like he shouldn't be a clergyman that's not in his purview anymore so and wickham of course was like super angry okay so then he kind of start he starts talking about his younger sister georgiana who is more than 10 years younger than him he talks about how about a year earlier she'd been taken from school and placed in an establishment. I'm guessing it was maybe like a finishing school or something to that, that nature. And that was in London. And she was in the care of a Mrs. Young, Mrs. Young took her and they went to stay at Ramsgate. Well, apparently Wickham and Mrs. Young like had some sort of understanding. Wickham went out there to Ramsgate and he like pursued Georgiana again. She's 15 Uh, which 15 at that time is not 15 today. Like it's just wasn't, but even so she's still very young. He's at least 25, probably more. Yeah. Because if you like, look at the math, I'm pretty sure they talked about how Darcy was probably 30. So she's got to be like 15 years younger than him. Not 
or 28, maybe 28. Specifically. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a gap. There definitely is a big old gap. And, and Wickham is like right there about the same age as Darcy. So Wickham pursues Georgiana. He like persuades her that she's in love with him and convinces her to elope with him. And just good fortune would have it that Darcy, he comes to visit her at Ramsgate just a couple of days before the elopement was supposed to happen. And she tells him the entire plan. And of course, he is a very competent and good big brother, and he takes care of the situation in the best way possible, gets rid of Wickham, and takes her away from Mrs. Young and all that. So that's basically where the letter ends. He just says, look, if you don't believe me, you can talk to Colonel Fitzwilliam. He's also Georgiana's guardian, and he knows Wickham just as well as I do, pretty much. There's others also who can tell you the truthfulness of this. And he just ends it by saying, may God bless you. You know, there's always different versions of Pride and Prejudice coming out. One of the most recent versions, and it's beautiful. It's a book that somebody has done a version of Pride and Prejudice where several of the letters in it, eight of the main letters, they have actually included like a letter that's written out in a font that was designed to look like handwriting. That's awesome. So like some of the main important letters, it's like you're reading along and then there's a pocket with a letter in it and it's like a seal and you can pull it out and you can like see what a letter of that nature would like look like, which is just really cool, right? Because that is really cool. writing, Yeah, because letter writing is such a thing in that time. And it becomes, you know, this would be like getting the huge email after the breakup or getting like the big long text message that never ends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because people, you know, we don't write letters anymore. No, but young people have gone back to a real written form of communication that they do almost more than talking now, which I think mm-hmm. is. That's true like their way of communicating, right? The tone of this letter, this is another place I think where Austin is brilliant. She gives Darcy a really strong voice Mm -hmm. for the first time. He is a little bit didactic and angry, especially when he like starts this letter. But in the end, especially as he's talking about his sister, he warms up a little bit. But one thing we recognize here too is Darcy, and this is a way Elizabeth, I think is going to help him. Darcy has never really learned to like really laugh at himself. Darcy takes himself and his business pretty seriously. And that really comes through in this note. I think especially in regards to Jane, I feel like, especially at the beginning of this letter, Darcy is really trying to kind of excuse himself a little bit from what he did. I think he's sort of playing dumb. And Elizabeth is going to have some of all these same impressions as we move into chapter 34. She reads the letter is just so distraught. And she acknowledges there's a strong prejudice against everything he might say. So she opens the letter thinking, oh, yeah, surprise me. What have you got to say? And I think as she reads through it initially, she is furious about his heavy handedness and the way he's treating both Bingley and Jane. And that anger persists. But then as she reads later in the letter about Wickham, at first she's like, oh, whatever, that's just your version of events. I have no way of proving that. But I think the piece that really starts to convince her that everything Darcy's written in this letter is truthful is what he says about his sister. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is this is a big, heavy thing to be telling somebody, something that could, he is entrusting Georgiana's reputation to Elizabeth. Because if Elizabeth was to talk about any of this, it would ruin Georgiana. To have even contemplated an elopement with somebody like Wickham would make Georgiana almost unmarriageable. 
I think knowing that she's been entrusted with this heavy secret and knowing she's, she's never heard anything from anybody except how much Darcy like dotes on this little sister. She also realizes that Darcy would never throw Georgiana under the bus to make himself look good. And so I think it's that piece of truth that then she's able to start working backwards through the letter and recognizing things that she didn't see before. So the other thing that we start to see too, then she starts really picking apart once she believes what he said about Georgiana. So that's his terrible things about Wickham's character. She starts dissecting the rest. And what she realizes is that she's never actually seen him do anything good. He's just charming. And because he's charming and handsome, he sort of convinced everybody that he's a good person. But as she's thinking back through their acquaintance, she can't think of like even one time he's done or said anything that has really convinced that he's a good person. And I love what they say here. This is how she describes him. She thinks back to that very first conversation she had with him. She was now struck with the impropriety of such communications to a stranger and wondered that it had escaped her before. She saw the indelicacy of him putting himself forward as he had done and the inconsistency of his professions of his conduct. So those three I words, impropriety, indelicacy and inconsistency Mm -hmm. and those three words are a perfect descriptor now of Wickham's character right up until this point she sees him as like kind of charming and fun and amiable but as she really looks at it now she sees oh he's impropriety indelicacy and inconsistency then what she also realizes is she can start to see him through her aunt's eyes who one of her aunt's big complaints about Wickham is that he had dropped all other young women of his acquaintance once um, Miss King showed up with her like 10,000 pounds or whatever it is. And he was pursuing her and the aunt's like, well, maybe he's a little bit mercenary. And Elizabeth's like, no, plain young men must have something to live on as well as the handsome ones, right? Like she's, Mm -hmm. she's very much in support of Wickham because, oh, you know, because Darcy wronged him so much and now he has nothing to live on. So it's okay that he pursues this girl and suddenly she's like nope I see this all with new eyes (laughs) and she's thinking was he kind to me just to like stroke his vanity or was it because he was deceived about how much money I was worth and once he realized you know when he came to town Bingley the wealthiest young man in town was basically dating Elizabeth's sister and why would Bingley have been doing that if they didn't have some money. So it could be that Wickham picked up on that and started sniffing around those sisters because he thought there was a financial gain to be had. And when there wasn't, like he moved on to greener pastures, right? The biggest thing here is by the end of this chapter, we have Elizabeth saying this. Um, She grows absolutely ashamed of herself. How despicably I've acted. I who prided myself on my discernment. I who valued myself on my abilities have often disdained the generous candor of my sister and gratified my vanity in useless and blamable trust. How humiliating is this discovery? Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind, but vanity, not love, has been my folly. She sees that she's got a pride of her own here and that because he was unkind to her in the beginning, she decided from then on, you know, first impressions that he could not be the man for her or for anybody. So she goes through this massive change right here in the middle of the book in her feelings towards Mr. Darcy. Um, she still sees him as kind of prideful and aloof. I don't think her basic perception of his character traits have changed a whole lot. 
but she sees that underneath all of that is this really pretty good man that she had not been able to see before. The other thing I think is interesting about this is up until this point in literature, when we have women in in literature, they often come across as stock characters, or if they're like the heroines of the book, they're sort of the same throughout because women are not given a lot of allowance in novels of this time period to have mistakes and to come back from them. And here we have Elizabeth who is changing a lot over the course of this chapter In the next chapter, they're basically leaving Rosings. Elizabeth is very chagrined. She's leaving Rosings very differently than she showed up there. It is again emphasized to Elizabeth how carefully Colonel Fitzwilliam and Mr. Darcy have tried to keep the secret of what happened to Georgiana. Um, First of all, there was a couple of chapters ago, we remember she sort of alluded to like young girls are kind of wild at that age, probably thinking of her own sisters. And Colonel Fitzwilliam is basically like, why? What have you heard? Yeah. So he's, and Elizabeth's like, no, no, I'm sure she's fine. Right. But here we see Lady Catherine sort of implying that Mr. Collins needs to make sure he sends somebody to travel with Elizabeth and Mariah when they go home. Because young women should always be properly guarded and attended according to their situation in life. When my niece Georgiana went to Ramsgate last summer, I made a point of having two men servants go with her. So even in spite of that, she was able to get into trouble. So if people Mm -hmm. are determined, they will. But clearly she didn't know that Miss Darcy almost did get into terrible trouble. So they have very carefully guarded their reputation. And so Elizabeth is again struck with just what a huge confidence this is that Darcy is, has given to her and how she needs to be very careful about that. And later on, we see that that is going to have a big influence on whether or not Elizabeth sort of like tells people that Wickham's not all that they think he is. And mostly she decides to kind of stay mum on that because she knows she has a secret about Miss Darcy that needs to be preserved. On to our next page, Mr. Darcy's letter She was in a fair way of soon knowing by heart, which I think is really sweet. I remember a few different times in my life getting notes from somebody that you really liked, or I know on my mission, there was somebody who was sort of like unfaithfully waiting for me, like for lack of a better way of putting that. And I would get letters from him very irregularly. And when I did, they would get read and read and reread and reread a hundred times, probably way more than that person ever intended for them to be. Um, She studied every sentence. Her feelings towards its writer were at times widely different. When she remembered the style of his address, she was full of indignation. But when she considered how unjustly she'd been condemned and upbraided him, her anger was turned against herself and his disappointed feelings became the object of compassion. So again, thinking of like Mr. Darcy character traits, he's maybe not great in person, but we know he's a prolific letter writer and maybe he's just one of these people that can express himself so much better when he has time to think about it and write down what he really wants to say. Her last kind of conclusion about her sister, sorry, I did want to read this. Um, She thinks through, especially Kitty and Lydia. She knows Mary's just silly, but not really harmless. Catherine, weak-spirited, irritable, and completely under Lydia's guidance had always been affronted by their advice. And Lydia self-willed and careless would scarcely give them a hearing they were ignorant idle and vain this idea of flirtation you know then it's like well what have elizabeth and jane been doing maybe there's a difference between witty repartee and like quiet conversation in in the presence of others versus uh this kind of flirtation that these sisters have with uh anything that's a soldier, which is, can be a little bit lower of a class anyway. So in those two chapters, we go from Elizabeth's abject anger to this like mortification. 
and this new acceptance of a different reality than what she thought she was going to have. Yeah. These are sort of the metamorphosis chapters, metamorphic where she. And it's right in the center of the book. It's like this yeah. dial gets shifted where you Brilliant. view things with new eyes as we go forward to the second half of the book. So chapter 38, what I read about this chapter is it's like, it was just a chance. My chapters, I really lucked out this week because my chapters were really quick and easy and I only had to do two. This chapter is like a transition chapter that brings her from the Collins' house to home or well, she starts going home in the first chapter and then they get home in the second chapter. But so chapter 38, so it's the next day and I love Mr. Collins giving her this like, lengthy farewell and i mean that's what's so funny like the letter that mr darcy wrote was so long and like they're very verbose so he says i will say mr darcy's letter was full of information like it had a lot to actually say mr collins you're like okay just stop talking because he doesn't actually say anything yeah lots of words no meaning and like everything he says isn't true you know i wrote down that he is in he has delusion right he says that he hopes that she had a good time while visiting even though their house is very plain and they have these humble circumstances and he also (laughs) wishes that she will eventually have as much luck as they have had in a wonderful marriage. He says this, I can from my heart most cordially wish you equal felicity in marriage. My dear Charlotte and I have but one mind and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us. We seem to have been designed for each other. Elizabeth does not believe that Mr. Collins has this accurate view of marriage. What she thinks is that Charlotte's happiness is because she's avoiding Mr. Collins. She just tries to stay away from him. And like, she's, I think she's happy with having a job to do and having a house to run, but like her happiness doesn't have anything to do with her husband. Elizabeth leaves and she arrives at the gardener's home. Basically Jane is there, right? So she's going to pick Jane up or she's going to go there. And then her and Jane are going to go home. And she desperately wants to share what Mr. Darcy has what's happened with Darcy, but she's afraid that if she shares it, then she's going to have to share about Bingley and this is going to hurt Jane. She decides she's going to wait till they get home. I read this as a uh, analysis or whatever that Elizabeth can't help but be flattered by this proposal. Like she hates him and she's mad and you know, there was this big fight, but yet this rich guy (laughs) proposed to her. And so- I mean, she's might actually be a nice guy. Like she's starting to wonder too. Like he, he, before he was just a rich guy, but now she's starting to wonder, but is he also like a really nice guy? Yeah. Well, and I just think about like how, okay, you find it as a younger person who's not married, you find out that somebody's interested in you. And then all of a sudden you start thinking like, hmm, maybe they are somebody. You know what I mean? So like this, he's planted the seed. That's true. (laughs) She's like, here we go. Chapter 39. So on their way home, it's Elizabeth, Jane, and Mariah, and they meet with Kitty and Lydia at an inn. And I thought this was kind of funny. And I missed this in the text, but I read somewhere that Lydia orders lunch for everybody and there's not enough money. (laughs) She doesn't have the money to pay for it. Do they address who pays for it? Well, she's like, we're going to treat you all. Oh, and we ran out of money because we went shopping. So you guys have to pay for it. So like Jane and Lizzie pay for it. it. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is hilarious. And Lydia and Kitty then mentioned that they're upset that the soldiers are going to be soon leaving for Brighton and that they're hoping to convince their parents to take everyone to Brighton for the summer so they can be with these soldiers. Uh, she also mentions that the girl that Wickham had been pursuing has left town. And Elizabeth is glad that Wickham is now leaving because he'd be going to Brighton because she most likely won't have to run into him again. I love the line there too, Laura. It says, there's for you. She's gone down to her uncle at Liverpool, gone to state. Wickham is safe. And Elizabeth's reply is, and Mary King is safe. <laughs> Later, I love, I mean, yeah, when I don't know which one of you gets to talk about this, but the conversation between her and Wickham at the end is hilarious. I loved it. So she does end up having to see him, but she's hoping she won't have to. So when she gets home, she learns that her father has no intentions of taking the family to Brighton. Then Kitty and Lydia decide to walk to Meryton to see the officers. And of course, Elizabeth decides not to go. The one thing I wanted to bring out here was that Lydia's like totally immature attitude. She doesn't care about marrying for money. She doesn't care about marrying for love. She's just boy crazy. Now Elizabeth is seeing all the, I mean, she was starting to see before and she had seen before Darcy even wrote the letter, the truths about her family. More and more, she's seeing the truth of what Darcy said in his letter is actually what's happening with her family. And it's probably gotten considerably worse in the few months that Elizabeth and Jane have been away because they've been away together now. Either one or both of them have been away for two or three months and I do think that they were having a bit of a curbing influence on some of this, but since they haven't been home and their dad doesn't really like take care of things and their mom encourages it, encourages it, the girls have probably been down around that soldier camp almost every day. And then Lydia's new friend is Colonel Foster's wife, who we get alluded to earlier is probably really, really young. She's maybe like only 20 herself. So she's kind of supposed to be the chaperone for these girls when they're hanging around the soldier camp. And I don't think there's a lot of chaperoning going on. I think it's mostly encouraging this really obnoxious behavior. And probably them being away and then coming back. You know how you go to college and you like learn kind of how the rest of the world works. And then you come home and you're like, ooh, I'm seeing things differently now. Which I feel like really brilliantly comes through in the writing too, because it was like before these trips that the girls went on, you know, we knew that, that Kitty and Lydia were, were kind of silly. We knew that, that Mr. Bennett was pretty just aloof and devil may care. And we knew that, well, the mom's behavior was still, was pretty like out there, but then they come back and it's like, everything is just as amplified to us as it probably is to them. Like, um, you know, like you say, Lizzie has been made very aware of how the outside perspective is and she comes home and it's like the first thing that they experience is running into Lydia and Kitty who have come to meet them. The entire thing is there's no forethought. There's just like, oh, we went shopping. I bought this bonnet. It's ugly, but I may as well have it as not. I got you guys lunch, but I don't have money to pay for it. We're going to be so jam-packed in the carriage, but that's fine. They're just so silly and so immature. And then all anybody wants is to go to Brighton. Anyway, it's like everything has really been like in your face now. So and the 1995 film film version shows that carriage ride on the way home or it shows them driving away. <laughs> and, and Kitty is like, we'll have such a jolly time in the carriage. And the first thing her and Lydia do, or Lydia says that, and then yeah. her and Kitty just start yelling at each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which in the book, it makes it sound like they're just like Lydia's pretty much chattering the whole time. But I could imagine 
what they captured in the film version happening a lot more likely. I mean, traveled with many children myself in a jam-packed car. As of yet, Elizabeth hasn't told Jane about everything that happened, but she's kind of like bursting at the seams because she needs to tell somebody because it's huge. And she, you know, she hasn't been able to tell anybody. So she tells Jane about the proposal. And first of all, Jane is like shocked, but then I love it because it says, Her astonishment was soon lessened by the strong sisterly partiality, which made any admiration of Elizabeth appear perfectly natural. She's like, she is very adequately shocked that Mr. Darcy proposed, but then she's like, oh, but of course, of course he would. Look at you. She says, his being so sure of succeeding was wrong and certainly ought not to have appeared, but consider how much it must increase his disappointment. (laughs) Like you said, no, he was so sure you'd say yes. And then he said, no, you must've been so sad. And then- Lizzie carries on to tell her the whole thing about Wickham. Jane was very shocked and dismayed and just doesn't really know what to think because it like very much disagrees with everything that she's seen between the two men. But she's like, but it must be true, especially like you said, when he brings his sister into it, it's it's got to be true. Poor Mr. Darcy. Oh, no, poor Mr. Wickham. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 She wants to believe the best of everybody. Yeah, she really does. But Lizzie's like, you can't make them both good men. Lizzie says, there certainly was some great mismanagement in the education of those two young men. One has got all the goodness and the other all the appearance of it. It really was sort of a mix up. Everybody misjudges Darcy because he doesn't seem to be a good man, but he is really an extremely good man. Wickham comes across very charming, but as she's discovered, he has there's nothing to support it. He's not a good man at all. This is when Lizzie is like, okay, I do need your advice on something. Like, do we tell our general acquaintance about Wickham? Because I think that she's thinking, like, he this could be a danger. And also he's like spread all this false information about Darcy. And Jane is like, you probably shouldn't, because if he does want to change it all, this will totally destroy his chances. And also like people in general are pretty prejudiced against Darcy and they probably wouldn't believe it anyway. They're kind of going back and forth. Lizzie's like, you know, Darcy didn't give me leave to tell anybody about this. And he trusted me with this very sensitive and vulnerable story about his sister. And I couldn't convince anybody else that this is true without bringing his sister into it. So it it doesn't really make sense to try to tell anybody. And so you can kind of understand that at the same time, there's this podcast called Betrayal. And it's really very, it's very interesting because it's sort of exposing all of these people who have been caught in the child porn. Not, they're not like involved in the industry, but they partake. And so they support they support it. And so it's, and what they're finding is like, it really ties back to adult porn, adult porn that leads to child porn. But so often the wives will find out and then they try to tell somebody and they're not believed or they're like, oh, is it that big? How old were the kids? And, but it's like these people, they are a danger to society because they start acting on these things. They start being predators and even just partaking of that evilness on the internet is it's it's so awful but it's almost like they're discouraged from telling anybody the truth because the women or whoever sometimes it is women who are involved but most often it's men the spouses or others who try to tell they're not believed or they're discredited or or whatever and but it's it's still so important to tell anyway I don't know. I was just thinking about and that. And Wickham because... has been believed because he has the appearance of looking good. Wickham would never do that. Like, what are yeah. you saying? Like, they would never 
believe that. And I, I think it again points to that, like, you know, sometimes people just have bad information and sometimes people just want to be willfully ignorant. Easier than thinking that there's some messy story about their favorite young man in town right now. Yeah. And then what what do you do about it? It's sometimes harder to actually do something about it instead of just believing that everything is just fine. And Darcy's an easy villain to hate. He has yeah. a lot of money. He's very aloof. Hating Darcy feels like sticking it to the man. And Elizabeth, by her own admission, she's like, I realize that part of the reason I did this is I thought I was being so clever and funny every time I insulted Mr. Darcy. And when you have somebody to hate, when you have a villain, it lets you be witty and funny. And she realizes that a lot of times she was doing things at Darcy's expense that were pretty unwarranted. Yeah. Yeah. She thought she was hilarious. Yeah. She was kind of feeding off herself and her cleverness. And yeah. And I think we see that in society now, like where there's this kind of vitriol at like people who have opposing viewpoints that you do. And a lot of it is played up for humor. Oh, I was just being sarcastic. I was just being funny. Right. But it's, um, it's easier to be sarcastic or funny about somebody who's perceived as a villain in your mind. For sure. Carrying on. So uh, she just talks about how like, you know, after that conversation, she, she does realize Jane is not happy. She's still really, she loves Bingley and there's no getting around that. And even Mrs. Bennett, I feel like this is probably the softest side of Mrs. Bennett that we maybe ever see that she's like, let's see, what'd she say? Well, Lizzie, what is your opinion now of the sad business of Jane's? I am determined never to speak it again to anybody. She's like, I cannot find out that Jane saw anything of him in London. She actually seems like she is genuinely concerned for her daughter. And she says, he is a very undeserving young man. And I do not suppose there's the least chance in the world of her ever getting him now. But there it is. You know, there's instead of she should have said, there's not the least chance of him ever getting her because he's undeserving because if it really was true what she assumed that he like ignored her in London then it should be that he would never get her but Mrs. Bennett is like well but she's never going to get him now and she's worried that Jane will die of a broken heart and then he'll be sorry and then she like zooms into the Collins and is like well I bet they're talking all the time about how they're going to be getting longborn and and she says, I should be ashamed of having uh, an estate that was only entailed on me. Well, of course she would not, but makes her self feel better. And then we jump into this chapter, which, yeah, there, it's there's a lot to talk about here. But the family, like you say, they're always, not all of them, but Mrs. Bennett, Kitty, and Lydia, they're always after Mr. Bennett to go to Brighton, to follow the soldiers to Brighton. He's like, no, I'm not going to Brighton. They're so sad about it. But then... Mrs. Forster invites Lydia to come with her to Brighton as her particular friend. And like you say, she's very young. She's pretty close to Lydia's age, obviously extremely immature. There's got to be quite an age gap because her husband is like one of the leaders of the regiment. So he's got to be quite a bit older, I would think. Entirely uncommon in that time period for men to marry, for gentlemen to marry. They'd kind of sow their wild oats and have fun and then about age. 35 or 40, they'd start to worry about the heir. Yeah. And then they might marry somebody almost young enough to be their daughter. It's an awful dynamic. Yes. The power structure there is just, you know, thinking about, you know, whether or not there can be consent when there's such a power differential is maybe not. It's just, it's a weird culture. It'd be very difficult for sure. Mr. Bennett says that Lydia can go with the Forsters. Elizabeth is just beside herself and she goes to her father and has this private meeting with him and is like, Lydia should not go. You've got to rein her in. And if you don't, 
if you, my dear father, will not take the trouble of checking her exuberant spirits and of teaching her that her present pursuits are not to be the business of her life, she will soon be beyond the reach of amendment. Her character will be fixed, and she will at 16 be the most determined flirt that ever made herself or her family ridiculous. And she says, if you were aware of the very great disadvantage to us all, which must arise from the public notice of Lydia's unguarded and imprudent manner, nay, which has already arisen from it, I am sure you would judge differently in this affair. Okay. So she's very passionate about this. She's like, for Lydia's sake, you need to rein her in. For our sake, you need to rein her in. Her behavior has already brought us lots of disadvantages. You may not even know of, but I do. And he just kind of mocks it a little bit. He, um, what does he say? Has has she uh, frightened away some of your lovers? You know. Um. He well, yes. I know exactly. <laughs> yes, and James in is just making like she says. She's making the entire exactly. family ridiculous. And then he basically says, "Such squeamish youth um, cannot bear to be connected with a little absurd absurdity. Aren't worth a single regret." But really, though, Bingley would have proposed to Jane had Darcy not discouraged it, and Darcy did propose to Lizzie. That Lizzie said no, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in that sense, he's—they haven't totally driven him away. But I think that's just funny that. Mr. Bennett cannot see the negative that's coming for them. Yeah, there's long-term consequences. And I I like Mr. Bennett, but he is not a good parent. I just wrote, he was like, she will never be easy until she has exposed herself in some public place or other. And we can never expect her to do it. So little expense or inconvenience to her family is under the present circumstances. He cannot see beyond right now. It's just quite frankly, lazy parenting. He doesn't have the willpower to have any discipline or consequences or to be like, um, no, you may not expose yourself because this it's doing yourself a disservice. It's doing your family a disservice. Now, of course, children are going to get to a point where they have their own choices to make. And sometimes it does not reflect well on their family. But while they're, especially those teenage years, while you as a parent are providing for them, there are things that you can say no. You're not doing that. And he just didn't want to. Well, and I think the tricky part is as your kids move into their later teens, into their 20s, knowing how to parent adult children is really, really so hard. It's so hard to know like when to intervene, when to let go, when to let them make their own mistakes. Mr. Bennett seems to be erring on the side of uh, let her make some of her own mistakes and it will be fine. She's only 15 and 15 is a really, really hard age for girls as far as like their independence, they're pushing boundaries, sneaking out of homes. I mean, this is the age when those kinds of things happen where girls will be really, really rebellious. And I am always continually shocked and amazed, like in my job, like as I see things that 15 and 16 year old girls can get into. In the back of my mind, I'm always like, where's the parents? And then when you meet parents, they are as beside themselves as anybody. If kids are pushing rebellion, it can get very hard trying to pick your battles. I mean, I agree that Mr. Bennett should absolutely be choosing more battles than he is. His He seems to be characterized by whatever's easier to do. That, exactly. That's and, exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like Lydia was maybe always going to get into the trouble she gets into. Well, and maybe so. It's stubborn but, enough. I don't know. But I guess it's like for sure. I know that her age was not there. And so now by the time the parenting really needs to be there, it's maybe too late. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, and I guess I think, okay, kids are going to make their choices. With the oldest two. 
he didn't do anything yeah. different with Jane and Elizabeth and they turned out just fine. So well, and maybe that's what he figures. Fine. He's like, well, look, you guys are just fine. Yeah. I guess I just think, yeah, kids are going to make their choices. And sometimes it's behind your back. It's things that you're like, wait, what happened? But when it's like so out in the open like that and you're like, oh, well, it's fine. Uh, I don't know. The time is drawing nigh for the regiment to finally leave and Lydia is going with them. And Elizabeth does find that she's going to have to face Wickham again. And when she does, it seems like he is like after her again. He's like ready to pursue her again. And she's just kind of annoyed by that. She's just kind of repulsed by him. But she does have this conversation where First of all, he's like, so you were at Rosings Park? And she's like, yeah. And Colonel Fitzwilliam and Mr. Darcy were, were there for a few weeks. And it says that he looks surprised, displeased, and alarmed. But then he, like, collects himself. Oh, he was like, Colonel Fitzwilliam, is he's a gentleman-like man. And and she's like, yeah, his manners are very different from his cousins. And oh, I'm sorry, he says that. His manners are very different from his cousins. And she says, yes, but I think Mr. Darcy improves upon acquaintance. And I think for him, the little alarm bells are going off. He keeps saying he's he's sort of like says these things are a little bit out of character, but then he checks himself and sort of reins himself back in. He says, is it an address that he improves? Has he deigned to add aught of civility to his ordinary style? For I dare not hope that he has improved in essentials. And Elizabeth is quite vague she does not speak untruth here she says in essentials i believe he is very much what he ever was such a brilliant line that way yes it really is she doesn't like directly accuse him of anything but everything that she says is kind of poking and prodding him which is also very brilliant and he just he just keeps getting more and more alarmed says that she sees that he wants to engage her on the old subject of his grievances and she's just She's just like, no, we're not even going to talk about that. So they pretty much end their conversation. It says they part with mutual civility and perhaps a mutual desire of never meeting again. And then that little evening ends and Lydia is going to leave with the Forsters and they're going to Brighton. Okay, so chapter uh, 42 doesn't have as much a note. We can kind of wrap up here. It does kind of say in the beginning that if Elizabeth's view of like marriage and happy family life was only being drawn from her own parents, she would be kind of sorely disappointed. So she's kind of understood from a pretty young age that her parents' relationship is not super typical. She recognizes that her father was probably captivated by um, her mother's youth and beauty and the appearance of good humor that went along with that. Um, there's a real suggestion that of her five daughters, her mother probably has the most in common with Lydia. She would have been very silly and young when her father met her. He was probably captivated by her. That's how they got married. But they weren't married very long when he realized that he didn't have any real affection for her. Respect, esteem, and confidence had vanished forever, and all his views of domestic happiness were overthrown. So he sort of contents himself with his books, remaining aloof from his family when he can, baiting them when he thinks it's funny, um, enjoying the company of his older daughters. And other than that, he's sort of, and and because he doesn't have a son to teach manly things to, right? Like he's been pretty distanced from that. But Elizabeth, from a pretty young age, realizes that his behavior as a husband 
there's some impropriety there. And she'd always like either seen it as kind of painful, but because he was always so affectionate with her, she didn't really um, think too much about it. And, you know, thinking about it, like we've talked a lot about how silly Mrs. Bennett is, but you have to wonder, does some of it stem from loneliness? Her husband is kind of aloof. He does not have great treatment of her or he thinks she's silly. I mean, can she be ignorant of the fact that he's mocking her a lot of the time? Like she may be aware of that. And while it's kind of funny on the surface, she also realizes like her parents just don't really get along. And it's kind of an awkward relationship. And she's starting to see how hard it is for children when parents are not equally yoked together. The disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable marriage, so ill-judged a direction of talents, talents which rightly used might have at least preserved the respectability of his daughters. And so she's starting to see the whole situation a little more despairing. Now, the good news is, though, at this point, her aunt and uncle get hold of her, her aunt and uncle Gardner, and um, they kind of renew their idea that they're going to go on a trip around the lake region later in the year, kind of as a summer trip. So she's really looking forward to that. I think all of us have had that sense of like, sometimes what's needed to restore good humor is not necessarily a change in your circumstances, but it can be a change in something to look forward to. So as Elizabeth begins to look forward to this, It says after the first fortnight to three weeks of her absence. So this is Lydia going away. Kitty is inconsolable all the time. And Lydia is not writing as often as she said she would. Eventually, it says health, good humor, and cheerfulness began to reappear at Longbourn. Everything more a happier aspect. And I do also think in some ways when Kitty can be more influenced by Jane and Elizabeth, I can see that would lead to better domestic tranquility than what they had before. Lydia and Kitty have uh, bickered a lot. And so once the initial disappointment for Kitty is passed of her sister being gone, it seems like their household does get pretty peaceful again. Elizabeth has this big trip to look forward to. And then unfortunately, sometime around uh, June or so, she gets a letter from her aunt and uncle saying that because Mr. Gardner's business is busy, they're going to have to cut their trip short. Instead of being gone for a whole month, they can only be gone for two weeks. So they can't go as far as the lakes. And so instead, they're going to go to Derbyshire, which as we remember, is where Pemberley is at. So again, we get this like Austin is working towards trying to get her hero and heroine in the same spot (laughs) at the same time because the plot has to keep moving forward. Elizabeth is actually quite disappointed. She'd wanted to go to the lakes, but it says it was not her business, but it was her business to be satisfied. So Elizabeth is grateful for the things she gets. So her temper moves back towards being happy again. She's looking forward to it. And so um, she's looking forward to her aunt and uncle coming. I think it's funny. They bring their four kids with them, but their four kids are not traveling with them. They're going to dump the four kids at the Bennett's house. And then they're going to go north with just Lizzie. And it sounds like Jane is going to take the main care of these Mm -hmm. children because Jane loves them. Again, emphasizing Jane's fabulous character, of course, you know that she's going to spend more time with those kids than Mrs. Bennett is. And so she's looking forward to going to Derbyshire. When they get there, one of the things they would do is they traveled through these countrysides. It was very common for these large houses of the day, like Pemberley, to be open to visitors. Summertime would be seen as kind of the off season for the families maybe to 
well or for the gentleman to be at home. It's not that they wouldn't be home in the country during the summer. It's that men who are really important, like Mr. Darcy, he's going to be gravitating towards London where he has business, or he's going to be going to different house parties with friends where they stay in the country. So that Mr. Darcy alone at Pemberley is not necessarily to be expected. So because they're in Derbyshire, Miss Gardner's like, should we go to Pemberley? And Elizabeth's first reaction is absolutely not because she's terrified she'd run into Mr. Darcy. I think on some level, she's not too keen to see what she's missing out on. But Miss Gardner convinces her because she's like, if it was just about the house, I know we've seen a lot of great houses, but the gardens are to die for. And Elizabeth, we know, is a great walker. She loves mm -hmm. to be out in nature. So she has a hard time resisting the gardens, and maybe there's some ulterior motive here as well. But this chapter ends to Pemberley, therefore they were to go, which I think is a great stopping space, even if it was accidental. It sets us up really, really well for what is coming in 43 and beyond. I do think it's funny though, because she asks the chambermaid who works there at the inn, she like kind of discreetly finds out that the family is not at Pemberley. And it's after that, that she's like, Okay, I guess we can go. <laughs> That's really funny. She had to make sure. Yeah, it's it's when so. you like both fear and crave running into somebody. And I think at this point it's definitely more fearing running into him than anything else. But she also knows she is not the same person she was the last time she saw him. So this yeah. is gonna be big. Lots of good right. stuff to come. We just keep building and building and building. Yes. So next week we will do chapters 43 to 52. And then we've got one more after that, right? We just have two more. Cool. Right. This is a big one. <laughs> I know. It's like our whole summer. <laughs> yeah, totally. Quick, 30 seconds. What are you reading, awesome. Amity? <laughs> okay, so I just finished Killing England by Bill O'Reilly. And I've talked about his Killing series before. I really enjoy them. I've told you before that he... He always makes sure he has at least two credible sources before he writes anything in there. And so I feel like it's pretty good. His books, they're usually just sort of like a snippet of history. And so he kind of takes the entire revolution and compacts it into one book. So as you can imagine, like there's a lot happening and you can't dig super deep, but I feel like it was a really good overview of the revolution at the same time it doesn't feel rushed like he does like dive in and and tell backstories and details and things but you know he covers a lot of years and like 35 chapters but it was really good i mean i've read a lot about the revolution but i i thought that this was a pretty good contribution so the two this week that i finished i also read nonfiction this week um it took me a few weeks to get through it's called confidence man the Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. It's from a New York Times reporter who's actually been following the Trump family since the late 1970s, early 1980s. And she got a lot of access to the Trump family while she was uh, writing. I don't know that I read anything in there. I haven't seen reported in other places. So I don't know if there's anything new to reveal. And it's the kind of book that like um, people who already dislike Trump would read it. People who maybe need the information in the book would probably refuse to read it. It's just hard to know what, I think it's an important book, but it's hard to know what kind of actual impact a book like that can have. The other book that I read, the fiction I read this week is called Someday, Maybe. Someday, Maybe is a book about a woman. She's of um, Nigerian descent, living in London. I think she's gloriously happy in this marriage she's been in for 10 years with her husband. They got married kind of young. 
And then she finds his body one morning and he's killed himself and there's no note. So the book is about her coming to terms with this grief that in a lot of ways is never going to really be resolved, but her, she's got this brilliant Nigerian family who surrounds her and loves her and helps her as well as the found family she finds in friends and other support people. The characters are all really well flushed out and warm and delightful. And um, there's some language in the book, but I didn't really find it all that too explicit. The audio was brilliant because the woman who does the reading is British, but she can do the Nigerian accents Mm. like incredible. It was so, and all kinds of different British accents. It was really, really good. I really enjoyed that. So I read the second ending by Michelle Hoffman, which was, I talked about it on our summer reading episode because it was coming Mm -hmm. up for me, but it's about this girl, this woman, she's like 50, but as a child, she was a piano prodigy. Her parents kind of ditched her. So she was raised by her grandma who was actually abusive and just kind of wanted the fame from her being a prodigy. She ends up going to Juilliard. I think she drops out, but then goes back. And once she's done with Juilliard, she just quits and she never plays the piano again. She has kids. The only thing she does is play Disney songs for the kids, like on the piano. And they call it, her piano is in her sewing room (laughs) and they call it her sewing room, but she doesn't ever sew or really play the piano. Well, some things happen and she it's been years and years and years, like since she was a teenager, since she has really played. And she ends up joining a competition that's similar to American Idol, mm. but for piano. And after reading this, I need this competition in my life. Like <laughs> there needs to be an American Idol for pianists. The only yes. problem I know I'm thinking of is like, I know how long it takes a normal person to learn a piano, like a p- a big piece, which as a teenager, it took me like a year, but as a mm. college student, it took me a semester to learn like three or four pieces. But I'm like, could uh, somebody amazing and professional and a prodigy learn a big piece in a week or two? I don't know, but I need this competition. <laughs> Anyways, it was so good. So a couple of things I kept thinking was, okay, she picked it up really fast again. And I'm like, was it because she's a prodigy? Because like, your fingers have to work up to things and like you practice. It's like being an athlete. Yes. And so she really picked that up very quickly. And I was like, I mean, they did talk a little bit about like how her fingers were tired and like sitting at a piano bench for hours hurts your back so Mm -hmm. bad. And so there was a little things in that that kind of bothered me. But then I thought, well, maybe it's because she's a prodigy and it's just natural and I'm not so I couldn't just pick it up. Anyways, and what's funny for me, because I don't play very much anymore at all. And I always used to think when I was a kid and I spent hours and hours and hours practicing, what would go? Like, would I, because it's like reading a language. I'm never going to learn, forget how to read. So, you know, what would I lose? And what mm-hmm. is interesting is I've lost the ability to remember what key I'm in. Oh, interesting. I mean, I can remember, but like I have def that was something that was never a problem. And now when I'm playing stuff, just knowing it was, everything was so natural and now it's not, it's Mm. just, I have to really think about it. And sometimes I forget what key I'm in or I don't know. It's just really interesting. So I loved it. It was like a traveling back to my childhood. Yeah. Spoke to your soul. Yes. And I'm reading another music book too. So I'll talk about that next week. So we're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, chapters 43 to 52. 
If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.